Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz. Welcome to this special bonus edition of the Vulture TV podcast. I recently published a book with my friend Alan Sepinwall called TV, parentheses, The Book, which is a sort of compendium of reviews of television shows, past and present. We choose the 100 greatest shows in the history of television, American television, and we talk about a lot of other shows besides. This is a recording of an appearance that we made together at the Strand Bookstore. And you wound up in the wrong chair, of course, as, pre- as predicted. I didn't know if it was stage left or left left. You're like the son of performers, man. You should know this. Yeah, but I went my own way. Okay, fair enough. So, um, so I'm Alan. This is Matt. Hi. And we thought we would just talk for a little bit about how we got together, how we wrote this book, our thoughts on TV, why each of us is wrong about 17 different things in the book. Just him. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> So, yes, uh, you came to the Star Ledger in 1995. Right. I came from uh, Dallas, which is where I grew up, and I was a, a film critic at the Dallas Observer. And I, I came to the Star Ledger in Newark to write a column on popular culture. And then, uh, then the TV critic retired, and uh, I can't remember how that exactly happened, that succession. But basically, long story short, Alan arrived a year after I did. And I was uh, uh, the hot young Turk, so there was another even younger, hotter Turk. And this was, I was a so fucking hot. He you was. No it was idea. unbelievable. It was unbelievable. It was all anyone could talk about. People were like fanning themselves <laughs> in the office, and I was too. It was like, you know, I don't know. I'm married. What is it? It's just here he is. But but we we got along like better than I expected, considering the threat factor. Well, no, because they had brought, they were grooming you to take that TV critic job, and I showed up as an intern a week out of college. And got on the beat first through a series of fluky circumstances. Right, right. But as it turns out, we had this editor named Mark Diano, uh, and uh, he was he was kind of directly in charge of us. And then Susan Olds was in charge of the department, and they got this bright idea to have us write a column together. Yes, and it was called All TV, and it was just whatever we wanted to write as long as it was oh applause. I saw a little like miming <laughs> applause. Thank you for remembering. Yeah. Uh, but it was whatever we wanted to write about as long as it was related to TV, and most of the time it was. Most. Most of the time. But we would write, you know, we would do reviews. It was like a broadsheet newspaper, and we filled up one half of this one page. It was a big column. and uh, It had to be 1,400 words more or less, and we could do whatever we wanted within that. So sometimes it would just be one subject. Sometimes he would write two things, I would write one thing. And it was a mix of reviews and breaking, breaking news sometimes, little items at the end. And then we'd, sometimes we'd go really, really weird. Like Alan interviewed uh, Noah Wiley's beard one yeah. time. Noah Wiley grew a favorite. beard one season on ER, and everyone was really mad about it. And I thought, like, let's go to the source and get the beard side of things. It was very, and the beard was very sensitive, and he was a little, he was a little hurt. He was a little hurt by all the, all the negative <laughs> remarks that were made. I remember that. I felt you made me feel for the beard. And then, you know, certainly our creative endeavors would sometimes drive our editors nuts, like the time when The Phantom Menace was coming out. Oh, yes. <laughs> and we, list, we did a thing on all the characters who were deleted from The Phantom Menace, who were all worse than Jar Jar. One of them was called, <laughs> one of them was called Shapu, and he, tra- and he walked behind the Banthas and cleaned up their dung. <laughs> and we actually got, this was like also a full page with illustrations. 
We got we got away with a lot, and then we did uh, the lawsuit, uh, the the class action lawsuit by the survivors of the wreck of the SS Minnow, against all of the people who had who had landed on Gilligan's Island and had gotten off but failed to notify anyone about the people left behind. Yep. They were suing like Wrongway Feldman and the Mosquitoes and all the other people who. And, and I just remember, like, we took this to, uh, I'm not sure if it was Mark at that point, it might have been Rosemary Perillo and Anne-Marie Catone, our line editor, and we'd been working on this for hours and just cracking each other up, and everyone keeps staring at us because I'm really loud and Matt with me is kind of loud, but either way, we were making I'm a, loud too, you can say yeah, it. Yeah, we were making a scene and everyone's wondering what the heck these guys are doing, and finally, after like a half a day, we turned this in, and they're like, you were doing this? <laughs> We're never going to publish this. And we both kind of pouted and gave them the puppy dog eyes, and eventually they ran it. Yeah, and I, but I do remember that Rosemary laughed when she saw the line about how the professor ended up working for Microsoft. Yes. So, uh, yeah, so we did that, and then we were independently we were reviewing TV shows and writing, and writing, doing interviews, doing features, reported features. And uh, the way that we operated was we were, you know, it was 100% you know, equal, democratic, and we had a, a method for solve. Like, a, a new show came in, and we were both interested in doing it. A lot of the times, you know, one or the other of us was interested, and the other guy wasn't. Like, I tended to be wanting to, to write about documentaries, nonfiction programming, TV news, and sort of artsy-fartsy kind of things. And you and, were welcome to all of that, man. Yeah, and like, sport, anything that was sports-related, I'm like, that's Alan's. Yep. I'm not really a sports there, guy. There was, however, one kind of important thing that you laid claim to early on, which was a little show called The Sopranos. Right. <laughs> uh, it turned out we, we had a bunch of connections to it because obviously we were writing for the Star-Ledger, which was the paper at the end of Tony's driveway, so they, HBO literally reached out to us as the pilot was being made, asking for help making props. And on top of that, Mark Diano, who he Matt mentioned before as our editor, was uh, not roommates, but was on the freshman dorm. He was on Rutgers. the same floor. He was on the same floor with James Gandolfini, and he, he said... Uh, he, you know that dent in James Gandolfini's head? Mark gave him that. <laughs> Apparently, there were a bunch of people in the dorm were charging around. They, got, they had dart guns. I don't know why they had dart guns. But they were charging around shooting dart guns at each other. And uh, James Gandolfini went to try to um, get Mark with a dart gun. And Mark was hiding in a dorm room. And he kicked a door open when he heard James Gandolfini coming. And it smacked him in the head and gave him that dent. And Mark's like, I took him to the emergency room. And he cried like a baby for hours. <laughs> He claimed he was entitled to a share of his money for giving him that dent. I think, he, I think he may have been overreaching. So when this comes, you immediately figured out, like, oh, this is a thing. We should be all over this, and I'm going to be all over this. Well, yeah, because it was, it was, A, it was set in New Jersey, so it was automatically a no-brainer for something for us to cover. And, B, it was really good. It was really good, and it was a, it was a show where... I think people, I think television has changed so much in so many ways that it's hard for people who aren't around then to, to, to grasp this. But there was a time when a lot of these cable shows were casting mainly on the basis of who was right for the part. And it wasn't so much, you know, we signed Matthew McConaughey, who was right for the part of True Detective, you know, for the record. The, you know, it wasn't so much like we got this big star to be in our TV show. It was more like, who can we find who will be perfect for Tony Soprano? And the guy they chose was James Gandolfini. And then they got, you know, Edie Falco and, and uh, um, Tony, Tony Sirico and all these other people. Um, and half the cast of Goodfellas. And half the cast of Goodfellas, exactly. Um, so we, I, I went out to, I did what is still, I'm fairly sure, the only full-length solo one-on-one -on -one interview with James Gandolfini. And it was only because he was... 
the show hadn't gone on the air yet. They were still shooting it. They hadn't premiered it yet. And uh, I, right before I was going to go out there, the day before, he actually called the house and, and tried to talk me out of doing the interview because he said, why would anybody care what an actor has to say about anything? So anyway, the show took off, and it did really, really well, and I, and I stuck with it for three years, but eventually I got tired of it, partly because I felt like the show was beginning to repeat itself, but mainly because I couldn't handle the unrelenting flood of letters about the show. I mean, the people complaining about the show and about my coverage of the show, and it was like sacks and sacks of mail every single day. And also, you know, there, were, there was all kinds of coverage related to the show, all kinds of, like, objections to the show. There were, like, the anti-defamation activists. There were people who were complaining about how they were snarling up traffic. There were the family values activists. I mean, it was amazing. And, you know, almost any other person who had this fall into his lap, or at least was smart enough to put it into his lap like you, would have, like, you would have had to pry that show from your cold, dead fingers. And just one day you walk up to me in the newsroom, no, was, you're on a smoke break outside, and you say, and I would come out with you to watch you smoke so we could talk. Right. And you said, like, Alan, do you want The Sopranos? And I thought for a second, I said, yes. Right. And so thank you for that, Matt. You're welcome. Um, so we worked together for 10 years at the Ledger, and as you can tell, we kind of got along, mostly. Yeah. And then Matt left the paper, and it's been another 10 years, and that kind of sucked, because we were really simpatico, very in tune. There wasn't a lot of territoriality about it. And no, and when we, you know, when we would both be interested in writing about a particular show, we would just do rock, paper, scissors, and that would usually resolve it. Yep, and so I wrote more about The Wire, and you wrote more about Deadwood, and that felt about even. Yeah, that's true, and, and you know, we, we also, we, we didn't, <clears throat> I don't know, I just felt, yeah, we just got along really well. I mean, to the point where our coworkers are kind of annoyed by us a lot of the time, I think. Yeah, like we say in the introduction, there would be a lot of times where one of the copy editors would turn and say... And say, excuse me, gentlemen, will you please, 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 please stop talking about fucking Deadwood. <laughs> And that would be followed by other copy editors standing and applauding. So, and then, and then when the applause died down, we'd go like, so anyway, a swear engine. <laughs> yep. So in, in all the time that we weren't working together, we would constantly say, like, we should do something. We should do something. And after a while, it becomes one of those things where you just, you know at that point you're just saying it, and it's probably never going to happen. And then one day Matt calls me up and says, hey, I've got an idea. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, that's why you're here. It, that was the idea. Yeah. I mean, it'd be great if it was a different idea. Like, <laughs> like we're going to climb Mount Everest and write about <laughs> exactly it. Right. And we went to the publisher. And Let's said, go on a pub crawl. Yeah. How about a book about TV instead? Um, yeah. No, so it's, we realize their TV is as better than it's ever been. It's finally sort of has shaken off. The, the kid brother, the, the disrespected idiot box, vast wasteland, whatever you want to call it, reputation. And yet there's really been very little done in terms of canonization in the way that there's a million film books. If you go downstairs in the Strand, you're going to find Pauline Kael and Roger Ebert and Leonard Maltin and David Thompson and everybody else. And there's like been two or three really good works on the, the breadth of television. And most of those are pretty old. Well, and you know, another complicating factor, and I just, this is fresh in my mind because I was talking about it on the phone with somebody in an interview today, was there's the moving target factor, which is that, you know, with movies, and I talk about this a lot, like people, because I write, you know, I'm uh, the editor-in-chief of RogerEbert.com, and I've been a film critic and a television critic more or less simultaneously for 20 years for different publications. So I have a foot in both worlds, and people often ask me, what's the difference between 
film criticism and television criticism, and I say, well, certain elements of the basic toolkit are the same. Like, it's basically the same visual language, but the biggest difference for me is a movie is a movie, and once it's out there, it's done. Like, you might get rare occasions where, like, Michael Mann is endlessly recutting Miami Vice or something, but, <laughs> but even that is basically the same movie. Like, there's a few things that are different. It's not well, like a television well, show where it goes... Greedo draws first, though. That's now a big deal. Don't, don't blaspheme in here, please. <laughs> okay. Um, but, uh, but when you, <laughs> I can't, I'm still mad about that, by the way. I'm still mad about that. You should be mad. I mean, that was ridiculous. Okay, was ridiculous. Right, I, I, Do you know I've how got, long I waited in line for that movie? I've gotten, anyway, you, off I don't I've gotten wanna, you off track. Go. You, you triggered me. So, uh, yeah, so anyway, the, but the biggest difference is a movie is this discrete unit. It's, you know, usually anywhere from 90 minutes to three hours in length. And that is the thing, like this object known as the film, as long as it's available to be seen in some form, it doesn't change. Whereas television is constantly changing. Like you've got your pilot, then you've got the rest of the first season, and however long it goes, not only are there more episodes, and the story is changing, the characters are changing, people are, characters are, you know, leaving or being killed off, and more characters are coming on, and sometimes by the end of a show's run, it'll just be completely different than it was when it started, and you kind of have to commit to a show to really, really follow it in any kind of substantive way, and it becomes really uh, frustrating sometimes, like really oppressive and intense. And I know you went through a struggle. I don't do as many recaps as Alan does. I used to, but I don't anymore. And I know that you went through this last year where you're asking myself, do I really need to be writing about every episode of all these shows? Yeah, and it be, it's just there's too many shows now to do that and to do it justice, and so I tend to pick and choose a lot more, and like, here's an interesting episode of a show as opposed to me hitting it every week, or I'm just going to write about a f fewer shows and write about them a little bit better than I did before. Yeah, and, and also, the um, back to the moving target idea, though, there have been books about television that tried to do more or less what Alan and I did with this book, and you can find, like, David Biancooley's uh, Teleliteracy is probably a good example. But the, the problem these books ran into, and frankly, we ran into it also, I think it's inevitable, is because the totality of television is changing so much, so quickly, so dramatically, the second you try to fix it by describing it in a book, the book starts to become obsolete. And sure enough, the second that we turned in a manuscript for this book, we were automatically, you know, we were immediately like calling and emailing our editor uh, to say, oh, can we add this one more thing? Can we change this you just, one you more You turned thing? it to Columbo. It really was. Yeah, this was one more thing, sir. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, you know, one of the earliest, we literally took longer to plan the book than we did to write it. We wrote it in about five months, more or less. Yes. Okay. And, Maddie, how long ago did we sign to do the book? Okay, so we, it's, it's been in the works for two years. A year and a half of that was just us figuring out what was going to be in it. And there were lots of discussions. And so for a while, it was going to be everything. So it was going to be not just sitcoms and dramas, but news and kid shows and talk shows and sports. So you would have had Sopranos competing with Sesame Street and 60 Minutes and The Tonight Show. <laughs> right. And, you know, Kukla. It was madness. All. It was madness. Yeah, it never so, would have worked. And the book would have been like 4,000 pages. Yeah. And the top 100 was going to have lots of current shows in it. Like the Americans would have maybe been in like the top 20 or something like that. And there would have been far fewer shows. And at a certain point, we said on that, like, let's just look at completed things mostly because, you know, look at Homeland season one. If we'd done this book after Homeland season one, <laughs> that would have been in the top 100. Now, not so much. So, if you look in the book, and we have a like, sort of honorable mention section called A Certain Regard. We wrote about Homeland Season 1 there. But 
We tried to keep it to current shows, but even that didn't quite work out. So, like, we are completed shows. We said, like, Arrested Development may or may not come back, but we'll treat that as done. Louis may or may not come back. We'll treat that as done. We don't think, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah, we don't think Curb Your Enthusiasm is ever coming back. We'll treat that as done. Whoops, he's doing a new season of that. Well, and we also had things where, you know, we have a works in progress section, which were shows we didn't consider for the Pantheon, for the top 100 of all time, any show that was still actively in production. The only exceptions were The Simpsons and South Park, um, right? I think so. Yeah. And uh, there might be one more we're forgetting, but I don't think so. But, but the thinking was when a show's been on the air for 20, in the case of South Park, or 27, 28, yeah. in the case of The Simpsons, you know, as Alan puts it, we have a pretty good sample size to study. You know, no matter what the next two decades of the show may bring. Like, we can, we can accurately say what we think the show is. Um, but shows that were actively in production, we put it in the works in progress section. But even there, there were some surprises, like The Good Wife. Yeah, which, and, which they announced it was ending like almost when we were done. I think we'd maybe even turn to the manuscript, and so we had to move it. And we said, should we put it in the Pantheon? And it just felt too fresh at that point. Well, I think we might have asked Maddie if we could put it in the Pantheon, but there would have been some mathematical re-ranking issues. Yeah, Maddie, Maddie's hair changed color a lot over the course <laughs> of the writing of this book, sometimes voluntarily and sometimes not. And we also had, we, 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 talked, uh, we talked our editor into letting us add some things at the last minute, like uh, Jessica Jones, which I I thought needed me in there and uh, Unreal. Yeah, I decided, like, we'd written a sentence <laughs> about Unreal. Because there's, like, a whole bunch of current shows that we didn't want to ignore, but we didn't have room for. So we just, like, let's write a sentence about each of those. And Unreal was one of those. And the second season was starting. And I said, God damn, the first season, this was so good. This deserves a full essay. And I wrote a full essay. And then the second season was really bad. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we were revising constantly, but let's, let's talk a little bit about um, the, the debate we had. When we came up with this scoring system where we... We should talk about the scoring system first, Yeah, I, I mean, think. some of you have already read the book, but uh, at least parts of the book. You haven't, haven't read the whole book yet. Has anyone read the whole book yet? Ooh. All right. Well, Maddie, you don't Put count. your hand down. You're our editor. <laughs> I would hope so. All right. So after we had to be talked into the idea of ranking the shows, and eventually we realized well, that's the way to do it. So then we had to figure out how we're going to do it. Let's figure out what are things that we value as critics. You know, what are things we enjoy as both viewers and critics about these shows? And we figured out these categories, and they were. They were, well, there was uh, innovation. Uh, how innovative was the show in terms of, you know, its, its style, its subject matter, its theme, its production methods, whatever, in a way that, uh, you know, was new, genuinely new. Then we did influence. How, how much did it impact other shows that came after? How much did it impact the culture at large? Uh, things like that. And then there was uh, consistency, which is self-explanatory. But I should add to that that it's not just a matter of how, how did the show maintain its quality over whatever span of time the show was on, but also how did it deal with sudden crises that had nothing to do with like, the artistic side of things. Like if a, you know, one of the major cast members dies or leaves the show, or if the show changes networks or changes showrunners or changes locales, something like that. Uh, then we did performance, which was about the acting, but also about the writing for the characters. So it's like not only how good is James Gandolfini, but how rich a character is Tony Soprano. Right. And then there was a story that, that was like, I think we called that characterization slash performance because they were kind of two sides of the same coin. And, and then uh, everything else went into storytelling, which seems like a lot. It is. But yeah, storytelling slash uh, filmmaking. And this is where you would get into things like the look, you know, like, for example, Miami Vice may not be so great in the, in the dialogue department, 
but in terms of the storytelling and the filmmaking, it was pretty incredible. Like even even if the scripts were not up to snuff, the the totality of the show was often really uh, enthralling. So we each had ten points to play with over these five categories, and the idea is if each of us gave a show perfect tens across the board, it would get a hundred. Right. And we did we did the scores. We put them in a spreadsheet. We tabulated it. And they didn't come out seeming quite right. Like, just things were either higher or lower than we felt gut instinctually they should be. Well, and also, you know, quite frankly, one of the problems with this, this scoring system that we had devised was it tended to penalize very heavily what I call the, uh, um, the troublemaker shows. The troublemaker, like the shows that are worth the trouble. Like Moonlighting, for example. Like, if any of you all watch Moonlighting, you remember what it was like to watch Moonlighting. It was brilliant a lot of the time, particularly in the first, like, season and a half. But because Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepard hated each other's guts, the writers had to write around them. They had to bring supporting characters to the forefront. Uh, Bruce Willis then, you know, got a, got a cast in Die Hard, and he started doing movies. Sybil Shepard got pregnant, right? Yep. And there were all of these other factors. And plus, the, the people who made the show were consistently running... Uh, behind schedule and over budget so sometimes you would sit down in front of your set to ask to, to watch a new episode of the show and there'd be a thing saying sorry no new episode this week here's a rerun and but the show was amazing and even and even though uh, maybe only half of it I think was brilliant I think I felt like a show as great as Moonlighting should be represented and a show as great as like Miami Vice which I think only the first two seasons are consistently excellent and then it's intermittently good then on uh, so we came up with this thing called Peak. Yeah, and everything else was judged like over the totality of te- t- of television. Like, how good does this compare? How good does this compare? That's not even English. I'm a writer. Um, <laughs> how does this show compare to not only I Love Lucy, but My Mother, The Car, and you know, Manimal, and you know, th- and things of the A Team and NCIS and everything else? With Peak, we were just sort of grading on a curve among the top 100. How good was this show at its best? At its very best. Like the very best season of a show, how would it stack up against the very best season of another show that's in the top 100? Yeah, so it was was bell curve, few tens, few ones, a lot of stuff in the middle. Yeah, and actually I've already started getting angry tweets from people saying, how could you give 30 Rock a four for Peak? It's like because it's judging it against the other, show, the other 99 shows that are among the greatest shows ever on television. You know, that was my answer. Tough um, grader, man. Tough yeah, grader. Yeah. So we did this, and when we, after we added the peak, we wound up with a five-way tie for first. Right. And that was um, The Sopranos, The Wire, Breaking Bad, Cheers, and The Simpsons. Yes. And so our, originally our plan was like, okay, let's just go through line by line. We'll just put the five of them in a spreadsheet and look at the individual rankings and say, really, is The Sopranos more consistent than The Simpsons? Is The Wire's peak better than the Breaking Bad's peak? But at that point, we're like, you shouldn't be doing this by math. We're no. already, it's already stupid that we're judging art by numbers. It, it really is. Like we, we did it as a way to sort of arti- better articulate our feelings, but ultimately, when you're doing something as big as what's the greatest show of all time, the numbers had to go out of it, and the mm. two of us just had to make our best arguments. Yes, and uh, we do we want to... I mean, people have the book already know, but... Yes. Uh, we chose The Simpsons as the greatest show of all time. Yes. And this was a somewhat controversial choice uh, because, you know, there is a consensus that, oh, well, it used to be great. 
It used to be great. Oh, yeah, it was the best show of all time for the first four seasons or seven Shut seasons up. or nine seasons Shut or 15 up. seasons wrong. or whatever. It is bullshit. It okay. is bullshit. So here, there's, there's two different arguments. One is, yes, it's not as good as it was from, say, seasons 3 to 11, 12, or 13. That's like the greatest stretch run any show's ever had. But A, <laughs> it was brilliant for a decade. Or more, in my yeah, opinion. Okay, so... I don't think it started to really lose it until about season 13 or 14. Yeah, okay. So the point is, it shouldn't, it was, Willie Mays shouldn't be punished for falling down in the outfield when he played for the Mets in the early 70s, because Willie Mays up until then was one of the three greatest baseball players who ever lived. So the fact that The Simpsons has stayed on the air should not be held against it. That's ridiculous. But the second thing is, the show is good now. If you actually watch new episodes on Fox, I see a guy in the back. He's shaking his head. Sir, you are wrong. You are very wrong. They, it's not as good as it was in season four. Of course it's not. Nothing could be. It's still a very good show. And if you judge it for itself, as opposed to judging it against the Conan O'Brien and Greg Daniels years, they will do a half a dozen episodes a year. They're as good as anything any comedy does on television. And to be able to do that in year 27 or 28 yeah, is ridiculous. Yeah, it's mind-blowing. And, and I think that if we were only, if we could somehow magically cut the run of that show in half and only judge the second half, I still think there's an outside chance that The Simpsons might have made it into the top 100. Yeah, and, there, and there's definitely, there's some bad periods. There's some years in the teens that were really kind of awful, and I think that, as much as anything, drives this narrative. So a lot of the people, when we've been doing interviews the last few days, they express surprise about The Simpsons, and they say, you know, the show's just bad now, and I ask you, when's the last time you watched it? And, and the answer is, like, 1998. Yes. <laughs> You know, uh, when, you know, when Homer moved in with the James Bond villain. Um, <laughs> which was pretty Hank funny. Hank Scorpio, which is a good episode. It was a great episode. So. Yeah, but even as late as like, you know, 17, 18 seasons in, they were doing stuff like that Treehouse of Horror episode with the, uh, it's a great pumpkin millhouse or the grand pumpkin millhouse yeah. where he's like, you know, you roast the unborn. You know, the, <laughs> he's outraged that they roast pumpkin seeds. It's like, yeah, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> All pumpkins are racist. Yes. So, so we, obviously we had to deal with the whole length and consistency and peak and all of that. But also, Matt kind of needed to be convinced that we could choose a comedy over The Sopranos. Yeah, and, it, and that was a little bit of a shock to me because I've, I've been on a, a kind of a tear for years now to say that, you know, in movies and television, that it really bugs me that comedies are not artistically taken as seriously as dramas. But it turns out I had a touch of that myself. And... Alan, rather like the Judd Hirsch character in Ordinary People, helped me to understand that about myself. I prefer to think of myself more as Robin Williams in Goodwill Hunting. It's, it's not your fault that you didn't want to see the light. It's not your fault. But yeah, so we, we had this debate. Eventually, I convinced him that The Simpsons should be number one. We had been spending a long time just trying to decide between The Sopranos and The Wire. And at that point, and he was arguing for The Sopranos, I was kind of arguing for The Wire, at least to play devil's advocate. And at that point, I just decided, you know what? You can have The Sopranos. Yeah, that was really generous of him. <laughs> Look, I won. You know, I can be, I can be magnif magnanimous at you that You can point. also be magnificent, Alan. That's true. I, I, I've seen you moonwalk, so I know. We've written so many words. I, don't, I, I used to have the best They've words. They've lost all of I their know. meaning now. Who yeah. knows? It could just, we could just randomly throw some nouns out now right. if you want. So obviously, we've got the top five, and, and that's good, and the top ten, and there's a lot of consensus things. But one of the things we really are happy about with this book is not even in the like honorable mentions or other sections in the top 100 we've got a bunch of shows that few of you have ever heard of so okay hands up who here has ever seen an episode of frank's place 
One, two, okay, all right. There you go, that's, a, that's in the pantheon of the greatest 100 shows of all time. And, and that's in there partly because, you know, I want people to talk about this show and rescue it from the, you know, the rights hell that has kept it out of the of public circulation. If you go on YouTube, you can find like one or two episodes and a few individual scenes, and I think there might be some like ads for used car dealerships in there from 1988 when it ran. But this was a show starring uh, Tim Reed of WKRP as a college professor who takes over his father's uh, bar in New Orleans, and it's an amazing slice of life. It was shot on 35 millimeter film. It looks like a little movie. There was no laugh track, and it was very much like a lot of the half-hour comedies that you know I, I had dubbed comedies in theory that are airing right now where it's like, this isn't a sitcom, it's not even that funny, it's kind of sad. Well, that Frank's Place was like that. Like, it was very funny and sweet and romantic, but it was also sometimes very sad, very dramatic, kind of dark. Um, so that's one of them. And we also have uh, Terriers, which is one of Alan's... Uh, I love that show, but Alan loves that show. No, I, I not only love that show, but I also... There was some chicanery going on with the scores. It was always going to be in the top 100, but I was determined that it had to be 100th. And, like... Because <laughs> it, it just seemed like that's a Terriers thing to have happen. It is. I, I can't lie. And, and, that's, and what, that's where it needed to be. And right near the end, we decided... At the last minute, we sat down in a bar in Brooklyn around the corner from Matt's old apartment, and we did a soup-to-nuts reevaluation of all the scores and we're like okay th is this really better than this and all of that and at that point terriers move up to i think 93 and i said that's not right that, yes. that's unacceptable and we lowered its scores <laughs> yes we did to get it back we artificially to lowered its scores to get it in the charlie brown spot in the pantheon <laughs> uh but you know i mean we've got things like in treatment which was this great hbo show with gabriel byrne as a psychiatrist yeah that was awesome and here's an amazing thing. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was out in California at the TV Critics Press Tour, and I was giving out copies of the book to other critics, and in certain cases, producers of some of the shows in there. And I handed a copy to a guy who produced In Treatment for three seasons, and he looked at it, and he said, In Treatment is in here? Really? <laughs> and he worked on the show. He knows how great it was. And like he couldn't believe that it would wind up somewhere in like the 40s or 50s yeah. of a TV top 100 of all time because he felt like it had been forgotten. It was in the dustbin of history. And hopefully now some people will use HBO Now or Amazon or whatever and give that a shot. And we were also, uh, I, I think we did pretty well in representing older shows. And I think there's a misperception right now and I feel like the media collectively is kind of invested in this, this idea that there was nothing good on television before The Sopranos and Buffy. Um, it's not true. It's not true. There was a lot of good stuff, and it wasn't just the stuff that I grew up with. Um, I, I was always interested in shows that were made before I was born, and, there, and I don't think it's quite as widespread to be able to see shows from 30, 40, 50 years ago as it was when I was coming up when, you know, a lot of syndicated TV was kind of built around reruns of stuff. But and, and there wasn't, like, demographically targeted cable channels, so you really had no choice. Right, and when I, in Dallas, there were some peculiarities in Dallas, which is, you know, it's Texas. They're crazy about anything that had to do with the Old West, and so on Saturday on Channel 11, they would have a block, it was like a five or six hour block of western shows, and they had like Bonanza and The Rifleman and uh, hop, a double, double, back to back Hopalong Cassidy and The Lone Ranger and, uh, and they would run things like Big Valley and uh, what was it uh, The Westerner, I don't know if you ever saw that, the Sam Peckinpah series, The Westerner um, and uh, so I, I got exposed to a lot of these older shows, and I sought them out when I came to New York, because the Paley Center which is an incredible resource, and they have one in Los Angeles too um, I don't know if they still do it this way, but it used to be that you could just go to a console and like punch in a button and call up pretty much anything, yep. which was great. Um, 
And uh, so we have older shows represented, and I think my favorite one is uh, East Side, West Side. I don't know if any of you in this room know of that show, but uh, George C. Scott played a social, he oversaw a team of social workers in this uh, Manhattan neighborhood. It was all shot on location in the early 60s in New York City, and it dealt with the issues of the day, and it was really like not a terribly reassuring show. And if you watch this show, there's actually a lot of episodes of it on, on YouTube, you will recognize the seeds of programs like The Wire and ER in this show. It's really pretty great. All right, so before we, we're going to go to questions in a little bit, but we should talk about some disagreements because we've been having a good time up here. But obviously, like, this book is sort of a collective of our two tastes, which overlap a lot but are not identical. Yeah. And sometimes we like the same shows but for different reasons. But there's some shows that are in there that, you know, you're not crazy about or I'm not crazy about. So my first question to you, Matt, is why is every show that Michael Mann ever produced somewhere in this book? <laughs> Did we really need every Michael Mann show? Yes. <laughs> okay, defend that. Okay, so for, for one thing, we've got Miami Vice, which I've already discussed. Sure. And then that's in the Pantheon, and I think you agree with that. Absolutely. Uh, then we have, in a certain regard, we have Crime Story, season one of Crime Story, not season two, which was... <laughs> but season one was great, and that was a show set in the early 60s that starred Dennis Farina as the head of a major crimes unit in Chicago, tracking this mobster named Ray Luca. And Stephen Lang was in it as an attorney, uh, and, and it was just a terrific period show. Uh, and it was a show that suffered in the ratings because it was a serialized narrative. And you would have a very complex plot, and it was constantly moving forward. They didn't do standalone episodes. It, was really, it really was like watching a really long movie. And one of, my, one of my favorite parts of that show was the recaps at the beginning. They would have recaps at the beginning, and they would have this guy who was like an old-time announcer who would tell you what happened last week on Crime Story. And by the end of the season, these things were like two and a half, three minutes long. It's like, and then Ray, Ray Luca went to get a wiretap and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, and, you know, and you're like, you've got a long white beard as you're watching the show. And, you know, even if you're a woman, you're like, it's like, you're like, you're like an old hillbilly watching, watching previously on Crime Story. Anyway, that's in there. Um, Robbery Homicide Division, which was a show that ran for one That's season. That's the one that I got a little bit of a head scratch about. Ah, uh, okay. Well, here is my defense of including that, which is that was the first show that was shot entirely on high definition. The first drama, network drama, shot entirely on high definition video, on the fly, handheld, documentary style. A lot of times they would like change the script while they were shooting it. A lot of the improvisational sort of small scale dramas and comedies that are made right now. This show paved the way for it. That was my argument for including that show. That and the fact that Tom Sizemore plays basically Al Pacino's character in Heat, which is kind of awesome. <laughs> All right, so what do you object to that I did? I, I... Come on, do it. Boardwalk Empire is in the top 100 only because I love you, Alan. <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta be honest. I mean, that show, if this was a top 100 of shows that look good enough to eat, I would say totally Boardwalk Empire should be in there. But, like, for me, the only season, there are individual episodes and individual plot lines on Boardwalk Empire that I think are as satisfying as anything else in the Pantheon. But only season four of Boardwalk Empire, for me, rises to masterpiece status. And that's the one where Chalky White comes in and, you know, sort of steps into the spotlight alongside Nucky. And Jeffrey Wright is Dr. Valentin Narcisse. I love that guy. Libyans. That was yeah, just a that, And also, you know, there are some other inclusions. Like, I still, I still don't understand the Chuck thing. All right. I still don't understand. All right, well, would you, which would you rather I defend, Boardwalk Empire or Chuck? Go with, let's start with Boardwalk. Okay. 
Boardwalk Empire, it's near the bottom of the top 100, and there's a there's there's some shows there towards the end that are there basically on the strength of one really great season. So Veronica Mars ran three years. One of them is great. The other two are just okay. But that one season is just good enough that that got in there. The fourth season of Boardwalk Empire, I would stack up with you know, the best work of some of the more classic HBO dramas. But I think either, even the other seasons, they could be frustrating. Nucky Thompson could be kind of a boring character at times. But I feel like you get to the end of each season of Boardwalk Empire, and it becomes that thing that David Simon always talked about with The Wire, which is the novel for television where the whole becomes greater than the sum of its parts. So you're watching it weekly, and it's this really annoying get-to-the-goddamn-point show but then it gets to the goddamn point, and it's great. And it was great every year. The last three episodes of every season of Boardwalk Empire kind of justified the rest of the time I put into it. And I think that, on top of all the technical brilliance and the great supporting performances and everything else, you compelled me to raise the scores high enough that your scores could not drag it out of the top 100. <laughs> well, it's in the book, so it's too late to take it out. Victory! Yes. As for Chuck... Why do you hate fun, Matt? <laughs> Why do you hate fun? Look, I was, I was a nerd growing up, and, you know, I loved shows like Chuck. Quantum Leap it appears elsewhere in the book. Just sort of Quantum these, Leap is great. Yes, just these sort of mixtures of science fiction and action and comedy and everything else. And it was, it was never a great show, except I think probably season two was at least a really excellent show, and that's the season I wrote about in the book, and it's just sort of all the elements came together, and it was just sort of this perfect distillation of a particular kind of show I really enjoy. And you've got some stuff in there that's just a kind of show you really enjoy. You wrote about cop rock, Matt. <laughs> yes, in a certain regard, there's like 850 words on cop rock. And what I love is it, we, we recorded the audiobook ourselves. And I, you know, we did it separately. I recorded my stuff. Matt recorded his stuff. And over the last week or so, I've been listening to the audiobook because we, we were in the middle of a move and it was just a good thing to have on while I was loading boxes. And when we get up to the cop rock entry, I'm hearing Matt's voice for the first time, and he just says, you know, very quietly, cop rock. <laughs> like, yeah, cop rock, deal with it. For those of you unfamiliar with cop rock, it was a series created by Stephen Bochco, who did uh, Hill Street Blues, and uh, it is a musical uh, cop show. And uh, Randy Newman was involved. He wrote original songs, and he actually appears in the opening credits. And the pilot of this thing, uh, it was mind I was in college when it came out. It was mind-boggling. And I saw the ads for this thing, and it's like the, the pilot, which is on YouTube. In fact, the entire first season is on YouTube, if you want to check it out. And then find me and tell me I'm wrong. You won't, because you'll realize that I was right about this show. Um, <laughs> It begins with uh, some guys, some, some gangbangers being rousted, and they are rapping about police brutality and, and oppression. And when uh, they are uh, found guilty of the charges against them, the jury comes in and sings a song called Guilty, which is a gospel number. And at the end of this uh, pilot, a woman, uh, uh, a, a woman who's a drug addict um, sings a song to her baby and then sells it to a guy from the black market to get another fix. This is like hardcore, but also really silly and weird. Um, and uh, they have a whole prison like corruption plot line that's like Oz with songs. And the fact that this aired on network television is just mind blowing to me. And it's not as. Re and I remember when it came out, it was on everybody's 10 worst of the year list. Usually, most people put it at number one. And it was like, people were appalled. They were appalled. It's like, how can you have a cop show where people sing? And. There's shows like that on the air all the time. Like I think if you you know if you're a fan of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend or Glee or something like that, you're gonna look at Cop Rock and go like I don't see what the big deal was. 
So anyway, that's why. No, and, and I think one of the things you'll find is commonalities in the book is we like st- we like things that try. We like things that really go for it, even if they don't always achieve it. So, for instance, we've got Sopranos above Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad, more consistent show, more satisfying show, fewer flaws. You know, no one's going to argue about the ending. You know what happened in the ending, all of that. We both like The Sopranos more. Yeah, and and the ending was what elevated it. I think for both of us, especially I for think, me. I think for you, Matt. I think because you're a crazy person. I love the ending. No, I, I mean, love I, lo- ending. I love the ending too, but I'm never going to say, like, The Sopranos is the second best show of all time because of the ending, which you do. I do. I do say that. I think that that's the greatest ending in the history of television. I think, you know, the mere fact that you can provoke actual fights by saying you like that ending <laughs> and, and, says a lot. And yet, in the book, in our list of the greatest series finales of all time, I was able to prevail and get The Shield as number one. Yes, you were. Well, the, the crystal imperfection of that ending really can't be beat. Yep. That's one where, like... The and sh- I, I, I love the audacity of that ending because it ends with a whimper, not a bang. Yep. You know, which is not the way TV shows usually... They always feel like they've got to go out with a bang. It's got to be bigger, louder, crazier, whatever, more flamboyant. And here, it's like, I think that show started to end, like, three or four episodes before the end of that last season. And by the time you get to the end, it's like... It's kind of s- just sad and pathetic. It's really awful, but that was a great... I remember we, I watched that in a screening room at FX's offices in New York with a bunch of other critics, and we walked out of the screening of the finale like we had just been to war. We were really, like, it messed us up. Yeah. So that was a great show that the ending elevated to something even greater. Yeah, and then, but then there's nothing wrong with doing just a flat-out, like, life-goes-on ending, and I think the greatest example of that is the ending of Cheers. I think Cheers is also one of the great endings in the history of TV, and, and certainly my favorite finishing episode of a sitcom, because it's just another day at the bar. Like, there's some, they're a little more philosophical um, than maybe they usually are, but it, it ends with him just saying we're closed. And that's great. That's great. And I think the last episode of ER, which has uh, Noah Wiley's intern character basically kind of having finally ascended to the role of mentor, I think is, is great, too. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Life Goes On endings, and you don't get them very often anymore. Like, I think the last sitcom to really do it was Everybody Loves Raymond, and that was almost 10 years ago now. Yeah, that's another, that's a really good show, too. It was. I don't think that that one gets, uh, that one should be talked about more. I saw a tweet from someone today saying, come on, how is, like, how is Will and Grace not on the top 100? It's so much more deserving than Everybody Loves Raymond. Well, that person's crazy. Yes. So, it's okay. So, all right, we've talked a bit, and we should probably go to questions, but first... Uh, we're going to welcome a very special guest, one of the great actors of all time, Mr. Marlon Brando. Um, Marlon, what, if you were doing a book like this, what would be your top five shows of all time? Uh, Alan, I would have to say, number one would be Iron Chef. I think number two would go, I would go at Gilligan's Island because I live on an island. <laughs> and some of the situations that are depicted on Gilligan's Island have been very useful for me as a, as a ruler of my island. <laughs> and what was your question? I'm sorry. Uh, t- the top others. five shows of all time. Uh, I like Leave it to Beaver because <laughs> the beaver is so charming and I think Eddie Haskell is just a, he's just a scamp. He's a lovable scamp, and he's always so, hello, Mrs. Cleaver, and things like that. Uh, and then I would say uh, number 
four would be WKRP in Cincinnati. Why WKRP? Just because uh, uh, Bailey is just hot. <laughs> Bailey quarters. I, I never understood why anybody would give would give uh, Venus Flytrap uh, uh, not give him his own network. I think he was the best. I liked his uh, I liked his duds. Uh, the fifth. I think I'm trying to think what the fifth show would be. Probably. Probably The Sopranos. You, you, you don't feel like that's a ripoff of The Godfather? I take it back. I'm going to go with my mother, the car. <laughs> All right. Marlon Brando, ladies and gentlemen. All right. This is what we used to do this at the office. This was another thing that would drive people crazy was Alan would randomly ask questions of Marlon Brando because we sat next to him. He'd go, Marlon, what did you think of such and such a show last night? Saying, I thought the cinematography was weak, Alan. What was, what was that? I just like to say Alan in that voice. <laughs> Alan? What, what was the plant that Brando always talked about? It's salicornia. You know, the salicornia plant can be used for all sorts of purposes. You can make... It can be used to make, it's rather like hemp, you can weave it and you can make a, the muumuu that I'm wearing right now is made of salicornia. And you can cook it, you can make a nice sort of a pudding with it, and uh, you, you can also sometimes, you can fill a hat with the pudding. And then you have a nutritious pudding lubricating your head, uh, which is good when it's humid. And it's delicious. Uh, yes, that was it. <laughs> and with that, I think we'll take your questions. Um, all right, Peter over there has a microphone, so try to get to you, if you want to ask something, so just I guess, you. raise since your hand, so and we'll... Okay, we've right over there. The, the microphone's going to come over, I think. Hold on a second. Here's coming. All good. Hi. Uh, so for the next 50, 60 years of television, uh, what effect, positive and negative, do you think uh, streaming and sort of the, the nicheification of the TV landscape will have on those shows that um, were not necessarily good in like the first season or even the first half of the second, but hit their stride late? Um, so for instance, because we're on the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, uh, the shows that need to grow the beard, um, do you think it'll have good effects, overall good, overall bad? Uh, what? Well, you know, streaming, one of the things that, that the, the different ways that we watch TV is done is I don't even know what to call television sometimes. Like it used to be when you said television, you were talking about an appliance that delivered different kinds of programming. And a lot increasing numbers of people under the age of 30 do not have an actual television in their home. And, in, and a lot of people who are older than that are cutting the cord, as they say, and they're just watching things on their mobile devices, their desktop, their, I, their iPad, or whatever. And so I don't even know, like, now, like, it's all kind of turning into content. So I don't know what you'd, what you'd call, In, in you know. the miniseries category, we've got Horace and Pete, which is technically a web series, but... Yes, was excellent. So we wanted to mention that, and we were able to fit that in under the deadline. But as far as the longevity thing goes, um, one of the big problems, and we alluded to this earlier on this, you know, on this very stage in these bizarre throne chairs. I like. That. I, f I feel like Mr. Burns addressing Springfield <laughs> University, the board. Yes. Yep. Excellent. Yep. Yeah, um, but because there's so much television on, and it's so interesting and well produced. Um, we don't tend to collectively give shows a chance to get better in the way that we used to. Like, if they're not 
awesome and consistent right out of the gate will cut them loose. And I've done that myself. I've done that myself. And I've, and I've taken to just flat out saying it. Like, I don't let people guess about it. I just say, like, I like this show for the first couple of seasons, but I felt like it was never going to be a great show, and, I've, and I'm done with it. I'm done with it. There's just too many shows out there. Yeah. And I think, the, I think streaming is only increasing that because not only can you watch everything that exists that is currently in production, but now you can watch great shows of the past, which leads to things like my kids like seeing every episode of 30 Rock or every episode of Seinfeld or every episode of The X-Files and then moving on to something else. So unless it's something like a Parks and Rec where the, the quote-unquote bad period is basically five episodes, it becomes much harder to sort of tell people, look, just be patient because there's lots of other shows where you don't need patience for because they just sort of start off right out of the gate. So that definitely becomes harder. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of different change. We could talk for like two hours at least. I had to go back and catch up with uh, Halt and Catch Fire because the first season was like, this is okay. And then it started to get good and better and better and better. And it's like, ah, now I got to watch it all. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's a bad thing to admit, but there are some times when it's a relief when the first episode of a show is bad, because you can just say, all right, I'm not going to devote any more time to this. And sometimes you guess wrong, and sometimes those shows turn out to be good later on, and maybe you catch up to them, and maybe you don't. You know, I want things to be good, but there's not enough hours in the day. No, and especially in, like, you know, there are certain shows that I've just said, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done with this show. Like, you know, I call them, uh, uh, they're like uh, bad relationship shows, I call them, where, you know, like you're in a relationship where it's like, Oh, God, this, this show is treating me like shit. It's taking me for granted. It's, it's wasting my time. I'm going to cut this show loose. And then, like, you'll tune in, and there will be an episode that's like, Ah, I remember why I loved you, show. Yeah, you I'm know. back. And then next week, they're back to, like, abusing you. You know, no, like, Walking Dead is that show for me. I finally cut the cord on that one. But, uh, like, Homeland, which we talked about before, Homeland currently is much better than it was in, say, the last couple of years with Brody. But I feel like, you know what, I've seen it, I'm good, I've, I've moved on to something else. So it's yeah. just figuring out what's worth the investment. All right, other questions? Uh, right over there. The glasses, yay. Yep, okay. Multiple people with glasses. We'll get to you eventually. Sorry about that. It's shocking that there are people with glasses in this audience. <laughs> I can't believe it. Um, so when you TV critics get together and you're stonecutters... Meetings. I thought you were going to say something else, but go ahead. <laughs> so did I. Um, are there shows that you guys are, have to defend as the only, like the only ones in the room that like everyone else hates? Do you guys have any of those indefensible shows? That That's you the story you, of you my life. You wrote about Cop Rock in this book. <laughs> were you not there for that discussion? I wrote, I believe, the only positive review of vinyl. In the, in, the, in the world. Yikes. You briefly tried to talk me into putting vinyl in the works in progress section of the I book. did. <laughs> I did. And what thankfully, I, think that I was show able is, to I think, that, I think that show is like the Wolf of Wall Street of 70s rock. You're supposed to hate these guys. You're supposed to think they're miserable, horrible people. I think the show is completely aware of that. And, uh, who wants to watch 10 hours of that? Like, you can, you can do that for two, two and a half hours. Yeah. When I could just look in the mirror. Yeah. <laughs> no. I've thought that. I'm, like, shaving. I'm, like... Yeah, no. But uh, I, wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't argue that it's one of the greatest shows ever made, but I think it's way more interesting than a lot of shows that are more consistent and more likable. I mean, I, there have definitely been times when I've been a voice in the wilderness. Like, I was you know, one of the first people, again, Parks and Rec, to start saying, no, this show is better now, and eventually that, that tide turned. But there was a show that, like, I kind of regret not finding room for in the book somewhere called Titus, which was a Fox sitcom in the early 2000s. Christopher Titus, autobiographical... 
Uh, it was like multi-cam, but with the sort of structure of a single cam. Very dark, very good, but also really broad and obnoxious. And the broadness and obnoxiousness of it turned off a lot of critics. And I would sort of be at lunch tables with people saying, no, you got to give it a try. You got to see this episode, you know, where they do the intervention. It's amazing. And the intervention is to try to convince the dad to start drinking again. Um, yes. Things like that. So it, it, it definitely does happen. I, I, I'm one of my proudest moments as a critic was uh, when I was uh, rather mercilessly mocked by the New Yorker in about 1994 or five for um, writing a New York Times piece about the unreliable narration, the use of unreliable narration on my so-called life. And the phrase that this critic used was he, he, a champion of the sick puppy show. He called it a sick puppy show. I love sick puppies. Yep, we got a lot of them in there. All right, yeah. Sorry. Now with uh, the the JJ's Watt Diner shirt. Oh, thank you. Oh, um, sorry. Okay, the the microphone's going to get to you, I swear. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Whoops. No, no. First, sir. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, okay, so uh, I'm a writer for and an editor for my school paper. And a few months ago, I wrote my own top 100 TV shows ever list. It's really long because I have way too much free time. And um, I thought, as I wrote, I thought it was really good, and I thought it was really well done. The issue got published, and people are like, you know, this is good, but you left off this show, and this show's too high, and this show's too low. And I'm looking through a table of contents, and I see, oh my gosh, there's like a dozen other shows that I missed from there. So, and you guys even, you're arguing between each other. You say like uh, Alan is mentioning about the Michael Mann shows, which uh, he doesn't think should be on the list. So, I guess my question is, is there actually a possibility of making an official perfect top 100 list? No. Okay. No. We, we don't even think this book is perfect. We're very happy with it, but like... We've been flat out, like, we're honest with all of you folks. We're just, just like, these are, this is a bunch of shows we like and we try to quantify it. Yeah. That's what it is. Like, we're not pretending this is scientific. We're certainly not pretending it's objective, which is a ridiculous term to use in criticism anyway. Um, it's, this is just like... You really, what this book, uh, I think the number one reason why this book came about was Alan and I, individually and together, were constantly being approached by people saying, what should I watch that's on now? That's a common question. And also, what, old sh what, what classic shows should I be familiar with? And particularly people who are TV buffs or TV critics would ask us this. Um, and uh, this, is, this book is an attempt to answer that question. Yeah, and, and it's, just, it's a shopping list. It's just a shopping yeah, list for you, viewing. You, you really. hear people all the time, they're paralyzed by the amount of choice right now. And so I hear people all the time saying, oh, I'm watching this show, I'm watching that show. I, I don't even know how I feel about it. But like, I'm afraid to like, start looking for other things because there's too much. It's like that Woody Allen joke, the food is terrible in such small portions. Yeah. So our hope is like, this will save someone else from never having to start Ray Donovan or House of Cards <laughs> and actually watch something that's good. <laughs> You know, like the, these sort of these imitate these imitations. I like Ray shows. Donovan. You would like Ray Donovan. No, it's, it's cool. You got James. You got John Voight like chewing entire chunks of the furniture. It's awesome. All right, fair enough. Okay, stand up so that the microphone will go to you now, please. There we go. Good, good. I'm so sorry. Okay. So sort of the f you talked to touch on this a little, but the flip side of streaming, which is shows that aren't available on streaming disappear and no one really cares. Like, my favorite show is News Radio, or Larry Sanders, which no one really cared, they couldn't have access to until Gary Shandling died, and then suddenly everyone wants to watch it, yeah. and it's not available. So, I mean, just as, as the, that sort of changes, that, you know, 
they, everyone thinks that everything's available. Do you think things are going to get forgotten when they're not on Netflix? Absolutely. It's a problem not just with television, but with movies. I mean, I, I've, I have watched in the last 10 years as Netflix has shrunk its options. Like, it used to be you could get a lot of classic films. They had a great selection of indies, like indie dramas and comedies. And uh, now it's like nothing, like, you know, some fa like an incredibly famous, or like, you know, some really major star will die, and you'll go on there, and there'll be no movies by that person. It's like, how is that possible that there's not a single one? The other day, my, uh, I wanted to show the kids a Cary Grant movie, and I went on Netflix, and I punched in Cary Grant, and there was one movie. How can there be one Cary Grant movie? So streaming kind of sucks in that way. It really does. And, and, you know, Amazon is great because it has everything, but it's a marketplace and you're paying for it. You're paying per item. But uh, Netflix, you know, uh, what I'm hoping is that uh, there have been some niche sort of services that have sprung up because Netflix has really dropped the ball with film goers. And so you've got things like, you know, you've got the Criterion Collection available on Hulu. You've got Fandor, which that's is really... going away from Hulu. It is. It's a shame. But somebody else is going to grab that. I feel confident. Um, and uh, then there's like a horror service. There's one that's like horror-centric. It's called, what is it, Shudder? Yeah. And I, I like this, and I hope there's more of this. I hope there's like an action streaming service and, and you know, a romantic comedy streaming service. And hopefully somebody's going to figure out a way to do this for television. I hope. And, and as we talked about, there are some shows in the top 100 that are not available, even on DVD, like Frank's Place. Easy Streets, which was a show that CBS basically canceled yeah. after two episodes. Thank you. Uh, like the pilot is available on DVD, and there's eight other episodes that I have on VHS. So the great, one of the greatest. Come over to my house, we'll watch them together. <laughs> we should have mentioned that some of these shows are available at our houses yeah. in the introduction. Um, but like you know, I think it's a, is it Anne, Anne Helen Peterson who tells the story about like she's teaching a media class and she asks her students, you know, how many of you have seen The Sopranos? How many of you have seen The Wire, The Deadwood? And basically nobody raised their hand because none of those shows were on Netflix. And sort of for their yeah. attitude, if it's not on Netflix, why bother? Yeah, and and I and I would like for there to be like a T, you know TCTV like Turner Classic Television or something where they're just like running a lot of these shows. I think there's a network right now. It's called I feel like it's like Me TV or something, they show a which lot is of like 60s boomer. It's stuff. basically it's, it's like well you know I watch it all the time. So what does that tell you? But I, I, I was actually on vacation one time and I was watching like the Six Million Dollar Man and the Bionic Woman on this channel, which is uh, and by the way I should have done a, a a certain regard entry on the score for the $6 million man. It's great. He's like fighting bionic Bigfoot out in the woods, and it sounds like, you know, James Brown's orchestra just blew up. Look, it's look. the most amazing score. It's like funk, jazz, rock, something. We and there's bionic noises mixed in. We put Oscar Goldman on the list of best TV bosses, so we, we've at least acknowledged it. Yeah, that's about as good as it's going to get for that show, probably. But. All right, other questions. Oh, my gosh, we have one so many. More. You rode in the elevator with me. So, Peter, how much time do we have? We have one more. So. Okay, all right, so this, make it a good one. Okay, uh, hold the mic. Okay, sure. How many hours a day do you average uh, uh, viewing um, television shows? And then when you, are viewing, when you are viewing a television show, do you have um, a criteria? Because as a critic, you, you're going to have to write and report on this. Do you have a criteria when you're watching a show versus do you watch shows just f for your very leisure you leisure. just enjoy it? Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry. What, what was that word you said? Leisure. What is this yeah. leisure? Yeah, because... Uh, 
Like authors, they write a book, they have a process yeah. when they're putting a book together. What's your process when you're watching well, a movie? Well, we both have, to, I think we both have di- we different, very different, different processes. processes. So, so to answer your question, how many hours a day do I watch TV? The answer is uh, 37. <laughs> and uh, no, it's a lot. But um, when I watch a television show, I take handwritten notes. I used to ty- sit there and type, but I find that handwritten notes are better for me. But also because... I like to draw little storyboards of shots that I like so that I can describe them. Uh, so I need, that, I need that sort of tactile part of it. And so I'll take notes, and then I'll go transfer my notes, and then I'll write my piece. Whereas I've seen, well, you can describe it yourself, Alan. I have a slightly different account of how you work your magic. But I, I have the laptop in front of me. And I write down everything, like just sort of dialogue, who's moving from one side of the room to the other. And it's all sort of like lowercase. And then there will be times where like either I have a thought or something is really hitting me hard or something is really making me laugh. And suddenly it's all caps. So like a scene is like, you know, you know, what, you know, Walt walks into the room. Jesse is there. Jesse says something stupid. Ha! Holy shit, holy shit, holy shit, something's blowing up. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. What the fuck just happened? You know, and then, you know, and then, oh, there's the side of Gus's face. I've seen, I've seen his notes. I've seen this in action. It's great because if you print it out, it looks like it's like as if E.E. E. Cummings were being peer- periodically zapped with a taser. <laughs> but, it, but it's great because I'm able to go back to these notes days, weeks, months, even years later, and I still feel like I'm right back in the moment when I first watched it. So, like, Ozymandias, which I would say is the greatest episode of dramatic TV of all time, I watched that in a hospital room because my appendix had blown up earlier that day. And, my, and I was, like, high on morphine. But I can go back and look at my notes on that episode and understand exactly how I felt with or without the drugs, and I could write you another piece on Ozymandias right now because I'm OCD in that way. And he would also finish it in 15 minutes because he's Alan. You have two books coming out this month. What are you talking about? <laughs> I don't know. People ask me how am I so productive, and I think, Al- I think Alan. I've seen, I've seen Alan write reviews while he's watching the show that he's reviewing. Okay. You have two books coming out. You have two different jobs. You, like, you're, backstage, you were telling me about seven other books you're planning. <laughs> like, don't even try to put this on me that like, I'm more productive. Anyway, all right. <laughs> I love you, Alan. I love you too, Matt. And I'm so glad we were able to come back and do this. Thank you for coming, guys. That's it for this special bonus edition of the Vulture TV Podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com. Or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV Podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is our Director of Production, and Andy Bowers is our Chief Content Officer. The Vulture TV Podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>